This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. I spent four or five years in Toastmasters learning how to speak professionally. It was a transformational experience for me, and I'd always had the confidence to stand up and speak, having spent most of my young adult life fronting a rock and roll band and playing in bars before I was even old enough to be in those bars. But a couple of years ago, after I was already speaking professionally, Michael Port, a speaker who I was familiar with but didn't really know, launched a program in what I will call here his life's work. This program is called Heroic Public Speaking, and one of the first videos Michael sent out to promote the program was a list of 50 common mistakes that speakers make. And I took a look at the video and I downloaded the PDF that came with it. And then I saw the first rule, don't point at people. Guilty as charged. Instead, you're supposed to gesture with your hand. Who knew this? I didn't know this. I'd never even heard such a thing before. When someone introduces you, start speaking immediately. The audience is already looking at you and the show has already begun. So the last speech that I gave before watching Michael and his wife Amy Port's first video required me to walk about 30 yards to the center of a massive stage. And I did so in this awkward, awful, uncomfortable silence. And it wasn't only awful for me having to walk all that distance in silence. It was awful for the audience. It was terrible. I didn't know that no matter where you are, you start speaking, but I learned that. And I thought, this is what's on the free videos. What in God's name is in the program? This is great content. So if you've never seen Michael speak, you've never seen a preternatural speaker who can give you an experience like none you have ever seen. I promise you that. It's amazing to watch Michael speak. And if you want to be a great speaker, you're going to want to work with Michael and Amy Port. And you have an opportunity to do that now at Heroic Public Speaking. You're going to learn how to perform and you're going to be transformed. You're also going to massively upgrade your content and you're going to learn the business of speaking. There is no better speaking program anywhere on earth, and there are no two better teachers. So go now to heroicpublicspeaking.com forward slash live and sign up for the October 31st Heroic Public Speaking in Fort Lauderdale. You're going to meet amazing people. You're going to have an amazing experience. You're going to be transformed, and you're going to be the best speaker that you can possibly be, and Michael and Amy will make sure of that. Don't miss it. It's very difficult to introduce Bob Keegan without reading his profile off of the Harvard Graduate School of Education website, but I'm going to attempt to do that and just give you a very quick summation of who Bob is and what he does. Bob is a psychologist who works on adult development when it comes to psychological transformation in adulthood, which means how we grow up and how 
the adult capacities can grow to meet the hidden demands of modern life, as well as how consciousness evolves in adulthood and how that impacts learning, professional development, adult education, and work. And his work was cited so often by Ken Wilber that I asked for an introduction, and Bob graciously agreed to join us in the arena. We're going to eventually get to Bob's work, Immunity to Change, which is a book that should absolutely be on your shelf if you are a salesperson, if you are a sales manager, or if you are a leader of any kind. It's a massive understanding of how we develop an immunity to change and what you can do about it. I'm going to start, Bob, in a much earlier conversation because I want to talk about the evolution of this work. It's fascinating. You're going to enjoy it. You're going to get stretched beyond anything that you might have imagined, but it's absolutely worth it. So listen to Bob Keegan in the arena. Good morning, Bob. How are you? Morning, Anthony. I'm well. And you? I'm wonderful. For <laughs> for the sake of listeners here, can you tell us exactly what a developmental psychologist is and what they do? Sure. Well, it's interesting <laughs> you ask that because okay. when I entered graduate school in the 1970s, if you were a developmental psychologist, it literally meant that you studied infants, children, and adolescents, you studied the ways in which as they grew, they psychologically became more complex. You studied the development, the growth of of the mind, of meaning-making uh, capabilities, and so on. Anybody who's had a kid, lived with a kid, knows that Little children, for example, have all kinds of fanciful ideas, and little girls think they can turn into boys or get older than their older brother, and by the time that they're six or seven, they, they don't think that way anymore. Those kinds of changes are what developmental psychologists historically have studied, but the field pretty much ended in its study of roughly the first 20 years. That is, we tended to yoke our conceptions of psychological development to our conceptions of physical development. And just as we don't tend to get any taller than we reach in our in our early 20s, we believed that the mind's actual developing, its qualitative leaps in capability was a journey or a story that ended in the early 20s as well. And then people certainly understand that you can get wiser through experience, but that was looked at largely in terms of learning how to get more and more out of the same equipment. The The belief was the brain scientists were pretty adamant about the notion that by the 20s, the, the brain had done all the developing that it was going to do. So there was literally no field of adult development because the brain scientists told us that there really was not such a thing <laughs> in the 70s. And that just didn't make intuitive sense uh, to me. And my colleagues and I began breaking new ground and extending, to go back to your question, extending what developmental psychology as a field might be about and asking ourselves whether the qualitative leaps in capability that were well-researched in infancy, childhood, and adolescence, whether those leaps really do end in adolescence or whether they might continue. And 
that basically is what my whole life's work has been about. What's interesting to me about that is that you have that breaking off point at about seven years old where you start to get what I think has historically been called the age of reason. You know, you start right. you start to understand that. But I feel like I had another one of those that was equally as transformational in my mid-20s, where mm-hmm. I would describe myself as not knowing beans from Brussels sprouts before that time. And then more, and maybe not by decades, but clearly, you're not the same person you were in your 40s as you were in your 30s or in your 20s, because that development does keep progressing, hopefully. We'll talk about what interrupts that, but... We now know a lot more about the brain that it does continue to develop both physically, right, with with even making new neural connections and psychologically. That's right. I mean, in the late 70s, early 80s, as our research started to take shape, I'd get invited to these august uh, conferences with panels of, you know, brain scientists. And I always went first, I don't know, maybe because it was more positive or hopeful. And I would talk about how our <laughs> research was suggesting that there were these possibilities for development in adulthood. And then the brain scientists would always follow me in with the most uh, uh, polite <laughs> forms of derision <laughs> and dismissal. They would say, well, you know, Dr. Keegan is basically making inferences on the basis of, you know, interview material. It's pretty big leaps. So we're, we're looking at the actual brain itself and we don't see any qualitative changes that would substantiate the kinds of claims or suggestions that he's making. And this is one of the one of the real areas where you can actually say that the so-called soft sciences, that is the social sciences, were actually out ahead of the hard sciences, which, as we all know, they developed more sophisticated ways of, of looking at the brain. And now none of them holds to this old orthodoxy that the brain stops developing after the first 20 years. I don't want to run too far down Ken Wilber's path because I've had him on the podcast, but his work is very, I would say, difficult for people who don't know. But really, it's upper right. They're looking at physiologically what we can see. And now we're developing even better tools. So we're finding out that a lot of that was wrong. And this is more upper left or it's interior. So it's harder for us to see. But you would intuit it and make assumptions and then do the developmental work to figure out what we really do know. Close enough. Yeah, we interviewed people regularly every couple of years, you know, with a tape recorder and talked to them about their lives and the ways they were making sense of their experience. And then we did this, you know, over like a 20 year period and with pretty high rates of return, people actually enjoyed the interviews. And, you know, we learned two things. First, that the audio taping technology got smaller and smaller <laughs> over those 20 years from these big clunky machines to these uh, cool little tiny things. But the other thing that we learned was that some people, again, not everyone, as you were suggesting, but to put it the other way, there were some people who basically, so we looked at the structures, the underlying structures by which they were organizing their experience. What were the basic sort of you know, logical principles. How deeply can they look into themselves and their world? How much can they look at as opposed to being run by? This is really what development kind of looks at. And we found that for some people, the basic underlying logic or structure, for example, one common structure that emerges in late adolescence, early adulthood is the capability of 
essentially aligning oneself with the values of one's environment, one's psychological environment. It can be one's family, one's faith community, one's country or whatever, and being essentially socialized and shaped by those forces. And at the same time, being unable to step back from those reality-shaping forces to interrogate them, to ask questions as to whether they actually do comport with your own ideas. Because in a sense, when you're kind of in the grip of this, what we call the socialized mind, what valued communities hold as sacred is going to be what you hold as sacred by definition. Now, we found that some people, when we went back year after year, they were basically still constructing the world that way. So they, they, in fact, were not actually developing in the sense of being able to step back and kind of look at those underlying you know, premises. On the other hand, we found that there were others who could literally tell us, this is how I used to think. And now, you know, I have come to a different point of view, and that different point of view is not just having, you know, becoming captive of some other community of value, but developing more of a of an internal seat of judgment and personal authority where you you look at the expectations of others and the values of others, but you're able to bring them to your own internal, personally constructed ideology or set of values, what we call the self-authoring mind, because instead of being inscribed, so to speak, authored by your culture, you now sort of pick up the, the psychological pen and are yourself the author of your own psychological identity. You have a greater internal authority as opposed to being shaped by an external authority. So that's one very common transformation that we see that some people make in adulthood and others do not. I want to sort of frame this up now that we've had this bit of conversation about possibilities because your work leads me, and you know your work far better than I do, but your your work leads me to this belief that we are capable of extraordinary change. And when you're just even talking about this, I'm thinking about, I keep a running list of beliefs that I've shed over time. And, you know, to a lot of people, it's, well, if I change my belief, then I'm inconsistent, or I'm going to lose this relationship. So I want to get into a little bit of that, because it is hard. I mean, when you grow up in a culture, not to just automatically absorb all of that and keep it as your own. I want to start this, if it's okay with you, I want to go back to a couple ideas from the evolving self, because I know we're going back a long way way here for you, right? (laughs) But just the central premise is I think that your work even started with helping people who help people change. So you wrote that it's not the person making meaning as much as it's the activity of the person is the activity of meaning making. That's what we do. Can you, if you can do this in an easy way for people who are listening, can you explain what you mean by meaning making? And then the idea of evolutionary truces, this idea of, and I know I'm going back a long way for you and your work has come a a long way forward, but we'll get there. Just this idea of the balance between self and other. What's the starting point for that sort of idea? I'm I'm curious as to how you think moving in this more theoretical direction as opposed to the more practical one will actually be most useful to your listeners. Because I think you need a little bit of context, but we're going to get to immunity of change. So we're going to get to straight action, which I love. I promise we'll get there, and I've got a story about how I got there. Well, 
It's true that even though what we are now kind of widely recognized for is something very practical, that is helping people make changes that they have tried to make, that they want to make, and have been unable to make, like a leader who wants to be a better delegator or a person who wants to eat more healthy and lose weight, whatever it is. People want to get more organized. These are more even very common aspirations that people genuinely hold and are unable to accomplish. But it's true that the the way we have gotten to novel ideas about how to help people change or how to make a whole work culture be one in which people are not only more engaged but more effective, the most recent work where we're looking at organizations as a whole, all of the original insights that we've gotten to on these very practical platforms come from the developmental theory that you are referring to there, starting with the very first book in the early 80s, The Evolving Self. And what we uncover there is that, not to be too abstract here, but basically the the development of the human mind is sort of like the, the natural evolution of more and more complex knowing systems or epistemologies, to use a fancy word, epistemologies, that branch of philosophy that studies not what we know, but how we know. That is how complex are the structures that we use, you know, for our knowing. So in Plato's cave analogy or story, people took the flickering shadows from the fires of their caves, the shadows that were projected onto the wall, as reality. And when they come out of the cave, so to speak, into the light of day, in Plato's narrative, they see that what they were taking as real, these shadows, are actually just projections from a deeper source. And that kind of move, where you're able to sort of step back and look at something which before you were captive of and looking through, it was the very lens through which you looked at the world, the ability to take off the glasses, so to speak, and view them, turn them around in your hands, decide whether the prescription should be changed in some way, as opposed to just being kind of a slave to that particular lens, is the essence of development, the underlying structure of an epistemology, of a knowing system, has to do with what you can look at and what you are subject to. So this, people may remember this from their, their sophomore philosophy classes, this very abstract thing, the subject-object relationship, where object refers to those aspects of your thinking and feeling that you can look at, that you can step back from, that you can take some responsibility for, that you can reflect on, that's all object, as opposed to what you're subject to, that, that which you are, so to speak, rather than that which you have, that which you are run by. This is the truth, that any given epistemology, any given knowing system sets terms on what is subject and what is object that lasts for quite a while, may last for years, and the gradual process of development which has a whole psychological component and so on, but just speaking about it abstractly, the gradual process of development is that we move certain aspects of our meaning-making from subject to object 
So, for example, to refer to that earlier development that I was saying is common and gradual for many people, not everyone, but many people in adulthood, the move from the socialized to the self-authoring mind. You know, I remember coaching a young graduate student who was saying that, you know, becoming a doctor was the fulfillment of a life dream, but that what she was realizing was that it was her mother's life dream, not her own, (laughs) and that she was beginning now to recognize that she had been shaped by and had kind of imbibed or taken on this dream that her mother had for her. And for much of her adolescence, that dream was her own dream, and they were one. And so she was sort of subject to that. And through her diligent study and trying to get into medical school and so on, she was basically holding a self together by adhering to and being aligned with those values and expectations that she was subject to. As she got into medical school and came to feel less and less that this was actually the life that she wanted, the psychological drama of this is, oh my God, I'm going to you know, let my mother down. I'm no longer going to feel like a whole self myself because this has been kind of the source of my own meaning. For her to gradually come to honor what is now emerging as her own independent view as to who she wants to be you know, with her life and professionally. And fortunately for her, her mother was perfectly happy to, you know, accept a different kind of vision. It can be more difficult when those around us won't do that and feel betrayed by the fact that you're no longer kind of an adherent to my values, but are now creating your own. But she was able, when she said it was a dream, but I realized it was my mother's dream. She's now able to take what she was subject to as object, look at it, respect it or whatever, but see that it's not hers. And so she becomes a different person. The whole self has become more complex and her whole notion of being, you know, in integrity or being a whole self is no longer just about, to put it simply, pleasing her mother, but becomes now about whether she's in alignment with her own internal values, her own internal system of meaning, which might not be the same as her mother's. What's interesting to me about that is I have this idea in my mind, she became a concert pianist or uh, an artist of some sort that was far off of that path. And it makes me think about how dumb my mom was when I was a kid and how she got smarter every year. And, and, right, yeah, right. and it, it took her a long time to get as smart as she is right now. Yeah, it just makes me think about that development. Well, that's what Mark Twain said. You know, when I was 10, my dad knew everything. When I was 15, he knew nothing. <laughs> when I was 25, I couldn't believe how much the old man had learned in just 10 years. <laughs> that's exactly it. That's yeah. our experience. I'm taking you down sort of a technical path. This is a podcast. I'm a guy who lives in the business world of sales, and your work is very instrumental here. But I do want to challenge people to think about this stuff. And your work is so deep. I want to ask you to share a couple other things. So the stages of evolutionary balances. So this idea of how we grow. Can you just, without getting into in-depth about each one, can you just generalize what are those stages for us from, I think, what you would have called incorporative to impulsive? And there there seems to be, though, like I'm saying this because there seems to be a great deal of research that says these are really common stages that everyone goes through or they stop at some part along this pathway, but it is how we grow and develop. And if you want to move to 
Yeah, I'll start a little further along because I yeah. think it'll be orders of consciousness if you whatever yep. you want to do to share that that would be I think useful for people to understand when you're looking at all the human beings you interact with they're somewhere on this plan right yeah somewhere on this on this developmental trajectory and as you say it has been pretty widely affirmed and upheld by lots of different researchers using somewhat different measuring systems and labeling the different stages you know somewhat differently but an awful lot of coherence now in these this research is not just in the Western world, and it's not just with affluent college-educated people. I mean, it's a, it's now across all genders, geographies, social positions. So it's pretty well established that this is something like this is the potential story of development, with the caveat that not everyone makes it kind of all the way to the most complex and rarefied stage of development. So I think in the best interest of time, I will, I'm going to skip over some of these very early childhood kinds of things because I think they're just, it's just going to be of more use to your listeners. We mostly make it past those anyway, right? Yes, that's right. I mean, there's the nature of the kind of complexity one needs in one's environment in order to support these developments is much more uniform in the early years. I mean, just to start at the very beginning, the child is born and there is yet no subject-object split. That is, the, the child can't distinguish between pain that's coming from hunger in the belly and pain that's coming from bright lights externally, you know, on your eyes. I mean, if you see an infant interested in some object like a crinkly piece of cellophane that's got sound and light properties that draw the kid's attention, if you then cover it with your hand, the child seems to lose all interest in it, doesn't lift your hand up to uncover it and go back to it. It isn't because they've lost interest in it. It's because the object has disappeared for them. They can't hold the object in their mind. You have very sophisticated research that shows that between 9 and 21 months, the kid will start to lift your hand up because they can still see, quote-unquote, see the object in their mind even though you've covered it. So in the beginning, there's no subject-object split at all. Everything is just an extension of oneself. Okay, now it would take a long time to to actually continue from there, but let's move forward to, say, early adolescence or whatever. There's a stage in development where you begin to identify your own needs and your own interests, and you basically look at the world as kind of your candy store or whatever, and you're basically, all you're doing is trying to meet your own needs, and you can look at others as suppliers of those needs or barriers to your meeting them. Your parents can be sort of, you know, antagonistic uh, barriers who don't let you do certain kinds of things or whatever. You figure out your way to sort of work around them. This is the unsocialized kid who's basically kind of out for himself. The normal process of adolescence is the process of actually becoming more socialized and the psychology of socialization is you become more a part of society because society becomes more a part of you. That is, you begin to internalize the values and ideas of people around you that you admire, respect, want love from, and so on. And instead of just orienting to satisfying your own needs, you move to this more complex stage, what we call the socialized mind, where you feel most whole, not just by having your immediate needs met, but by being in sync with the values and expectations of those 
who you most want to be included with. And so you start to take on the coloration of your psychological surround and you adopt the values, you know, of your peer group and so on. Now, you're not conscious that you're doing this. I mean, I've interviewed young adolescents who will tell me, you know, this business of peer pressure, it's just a grown-up term. We don't feel anything like peer pressure. It's just <laughs> something in your mind. Meanwhile, they're all dressed almost exactly alike. You know, their cadences of their speech and intonations are unbelievably similar. They're not aware that they are subject to peer pressure because literally they're subject to it. That's the whole point. They can't step back from it, look at it, interrogate it, decide, you know, whether they want to, you know, to, to be pressured by it. Okay. That's the socialized mind. I suppose, you know, if you're thinking about you know, things like marketing, you could apply developmental theory. It wouldn't be, to my mind, the most inspiring way of doing it, but you could apply developmental theory by just saying, let's let people stay where they are and let's just ask ourselves what will be the most meaningful way to engage the person wherever they might be. So if you were trying to market to the socialized mind, I think what you would be thinking about is you would be trying to activate those reference groups that are most valuable to this potential consumer and showing them how your product or your service in some way helps them to maintain the respect of others and help them be included within the groups, you know, that are most important to them. Status and belonging. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Now, most people reach the socialized stage. It's actually like a third or fourth stage here in this continuum, in this kind of a hurry-up summary. And most of them reach it, you know, sometime in adolescence. If they don't, they're at quite a disadvantage. They're unable to actually form genuine relationships of true caring and empathy. They may tend towards something that looks a little bit more like a sociopath who's basically just kind of operating just on behalf of their own purposes. And there are obviously lots of adults who never do reach the socialized mind, but most do. And then the developmental journey from that point on, it's quite variable with respect to how many people essentially stay in the socialized mind and how many people develop this self-authoring mind that I was talking about, where you have the ability to you're not just ignoring other people's expectations and values, but you have the ability to bring them to an independent internal seat of judgment where you can interrogate them, look at them, decide if they comport with your own system of belief. So if you want to go to the sort of Maslow hierarchy of needs, what comes after love, affection, and belongingness? If you were marketing to that stage, which would be, you know, thinking about is not just, you know, what will help a person feel like they're more loved and respected and that they have the status they want from the people whose opinions matter to them, but you'd be recognizing that the person has their own particular, they're driving their own agenda, they have their own personal identity, and you'd somehow want to be connecting with that. I don't know so, how you would do that, but that's not my field. <laughs> Self-actualization? You're talking about the top of Maslow's pyramid? No, I'm talking about what comes right before self-actualization, but after love, affection, and belonging. Esteem needs. Yeah, self-esteem. And yeah, so I guess 
I don't know how perfectly these things fit because esteem can, I could have self-esteem because you love and respect me and my esteem essentially depends on your continuing to love and respect me, which would still be the socialized mind. We humans are complicated. Yeah. <laughs> if it's an esteem that, you know, I, I grant it to myself because I'm in line with my own values, even if it's going to cause you to be upset with me or whatever, that's more of the self-authoring mind. Now, just to finish this, the self-authoring mind looks like kind of the acme, the summit of development. You've become psychologically independent. You're no longer essentially just made up by your culture or your surround. You've developed your own internal ideology or theory. But what we've learned, you know, and this isn't from just sitting and reflecting at a desk, it's doing this very kind of pedestrian work of making dates with people and sitting down with them and turning on a tape recorder and talking for two hours and transcribing the tape and then looking carefully at what they're saying and then comparing it to what they said three years ago. And I mean, that's kind of how you begin to see that for some people, we find that maybe only something like, I don't know, 35, 40% of the adult population actually moves to the self-authoring mind, becomes psychologically more independent. But when you do this research, you find that this isn't the end of the story of development for everyone, that there is another smaller group. Generally, the different research studies confirm that it's single digits of percentages, somewhere, I don't know, 5 to 8%, let's say, of the adult population develops even beyond the self-authoring mind. So what does that look like? That looks like the ability to recognize that, yes, you have put together your own internal system and it works for you in a certain way. It gives you a place to stand firmly in relationship to other people's expectations or claims upon you. But you come to recognize that any one system, any one ideology is inevitably going to leave certain things out and you begin to hold your own system a little more lightly, a little more tentatively, and you have a kind of openness to look at the contradictions, to look at the dialectic as opposed to just holding one side of life's big polarities and you begin to encompass or attach to a multiplicity of different ideologies. And in a sense, Carl Jung, who was the, really the first psychologist of midlife, and in a way you could say that he was one of the first adult developmental psychologists because he really was making a claim that he had an interest in a particular phase of development, I mean, further along in adulthood, like midlife. But he was making a claim that there was the potential for a whole different kind of consciousness in midlife, which I mean, he was a little bit optimistic about it. He seemed to suggest this is what was going to happen for everyone. The research doesn't show that. But what he intuited has been pretty borne out by the research. He kind of, what he noted, that some people in midlife develop the ability to hold on to the opposites, that the man who has created this kind of masculine personality and who has essentially projected or separated himself from his more feminine side, maybe projecting it onto his partner in a heterosexual relationship, comes to be able to be more comfortable in claiming his more feminine side rather than needing to project it and to recognize that 
you know, he has something of the characteristics, the psychological characteristics of the masculine and the feminine and the woman, the same thing. So the classical look of the, the woman who is able to claim a certain kind of uh, personal uh, strength or whatever that, you know, historically would have been counter normative to the values of femininity or whatever, or any of these great polarities that the old person and the young. So you, you instead of just sort of rejecting the child within you, because you think you've outgrown that and you have your delight in it through your relationship with your children or your grandchildren, you come to be able to own that you have childlike impulses within yourself that can be sources of creativity or sources of, they can get you in trouble, but in any <laughs> case that you can that you can own them. So this is more what the stage beyond the self-authoring, we call it the self-transforming stage because the self is no longer just committed to maintaining its own formation, its own identity. You recognize that you can contain multitudes, as Walt Whitman said. Okay, I should end there. We'll just talk that, about developmental stages the whole time. No, those are good because I don't think most people are aware that those are the stages, number one. And number two, what I think if I was to summarize that, I want to just ask you two questions. But I think to summarize that, basically, even if I'm the self-authoring mind, the next stage is to look at that and make it an object, right? So that I can exactly. say, I can now see what I'm doing here. And then to be, I'm just going to say, being much more comfortable that everything is gray and it's not just black or white and we don't have the polarities. There's lots of ranges in between there. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think that's the way it looks sort of in the transition and the beginning moves out of the self-authoring. Yeah. It gets much more nuanced and there's many more things you can say about it as you start to grow more and more into a qualitatively different stage beyond the self-authoring mind, what we call the self-transforming mind. And people who have an interest in this, they can read about it in my book, In Over Our Heads, which goes into this at great length. Yeah, I want to talk about that, and I'll, I'll ask you to just talk about this. I don't want to drag you through a whole bunch of technological and complicated concepts, but is it unfair to call when someone gets stuck in a stage of pathology, is it unfair to do that? And then I want to shift us into immunity to change because I think about we're trying to help people, I'm going to say, level up. And people are at different levels of development through their whole life. And so we have lots of different groups of people and individuals who may be at different stages of their own development where we're sharing concepts and we see things differently because we're using, I'm going to say, a different lens to look at that. So first, is pathology an unfair word because it's sort of almost a judgment of that stalling out point? Yeah, so if you, I, I think it's an unfair word. I mean, first of all, I mean, literally, it suggests that there's some kind of a disease process going on and it's in need of a cure. I think that that is a bit of an unfortunate way of framing something where there's a grain of truth. In other words, there is a problem. There can right. be a problem in staying at the same stage. And that problem, you know, wants a solution. But that's a different formulation than saying the person has a form of a disease and they need like a cure. So I only say that because you said the sociopath idea, if you get stuck at that egocentric stage where yes, you're being socialized. Right. Yeah, but that's a function and that's a good way to get into this. It shows you that you can't really think about how problematic this is, just decontextualize on its own terms. You have to think about it in terms of what's going on within one's environment or within one's society. So 
it isn't a problem that the normal 10-year-old loves his mother but would still sell her for a cold drink on a hot day, you know. Uh, and then later he'd regret it. But at the time, it would seem like a good deal. He was thirsty and he didn't need his mother at that moment. Okay, now, we don't say that that kid is a sociopath. Right. We just recognize that's the nature of a 10-year-old. And that, by the way, is why 10-year-olds have to be watched pretty carefully and why, if you think about it in a, in a wholesome situation, a 10-year-old is under the watch of some adult supervision pretty much continuously. They're in their parents' home. They're moving to school. Then there's adults there at the school. When we read about parents who you know, go off to vacations and leave their eight-year-old, we're properly outraged. We have a sense that that kid has a psychology. We don't realize it this way, but we, we recognize that kid has a psychology that would put them at risk to basically be on their own. But there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that psychology. That's the, that's the nature of being, you know, eight, 10 years old. Now, the thing I was saying about the sociopath is that when you become 25 and you still have that psychology, it's a problem because when you're 25 in the 21st century, let's say in the United States, you have all these freedoms that are granted to you. And yet you're operating in this world without all these forms of adult supervision but without a complicated enough psychology, and that's going to get you into various kinds of trouble. So notice that you could say this about any stages. Is it a problem? Don't you have to call it a pathology. Just is it a problem at all for an adult to come to the socialized mind where they can now become a faithful member of a tribe and meet its expectations for how you're supposed to operate, and they never develop a more complex psychology than that for the rest of their lives? Is that a problem? Well, it depends. If we take ourselves back into, I don't know, 18th century or, you know, we take ourselves back into a very traditional culture without all this plurality of broadcasting all different kinds of values and different notions of what it is to be a man or a woman or an adult. If you live in a tribal kind of environment where there's a single definition of how you're supposed to conduct yourself, and that definition is visible to you in the lives of your elders, and all you have to do is sort of look up to them, and now you have the socialized psychology that gives you the capability to internalize those values and want to be like your tribal elders, not only is it not a pathology, it's not even a problem that you've remained in the socialized mind because there's no complex demands within that culture that outstrip the capabilities of the socialized mind. However, it's very hard to find a tribal, monolithic, traditional environment that one could live in today. Today, there are all these different pictures of what you should be as an elder as you grow. And so today, when you move into the socialized mind as an adolescent, we're going to applaud for this. You're now going to be like a responsible kid. You can hold up your end of an agreement. You can be trusted and so on. And that's great when you're 16 and you've become this more responsible person. But if you're 36 and you have children and you have to make decisions about their safety and so on, and you are unable to access a kind of internal authority, then it becomes a problem. So again, you have to look at the problematic nature of a given developmental position in relationship to the set of demands 
the sort of natural curriculum that a person faces in their life. It's contextual. I was thinking, as you said, the 18th century. I think to describe that period where the highest level you would have to develop is that level to be a faithful member of tribe might have been the United States in the 50s. I mean, there was probably a lot easier to get along than it is in a complicated society like 2016. Yeah. I want to move us to immunity to change. And I was sitting with Ken Wilbur. I don't know how well you know Ken. I well, know him very well. Oh, yeah. Good friend. Okay. I was in his loft in Denver, and I was sketching out a little framework that I used to think about helping people change. And so I sketched out for him in the first column, new goals and new outcomes. And so these are the things that people say that they want, and I believe that they want them. When they say that, I believe they're telling the truth. The second column is a list of what I call existing beliefs and behaviors that prevent that new goal from being realized, so sort of the things that they're committed to. And then the third column I call fears, which are the reasons that prevent people from reaching these goals. And then I have two more columns, one which is what is their real human need that's being met by the status quo. So that's sort of that Abraham Maslow, what need are they meeting? Are they meeting the need for certainty? Are they meeting the need for significance? And then the final column, I have better choices for meeting those needs. And as I showed him this, he said, do you know Bob Keegan? (laughs) And I said, no, I don't. I do know you through his work because he cites you so often throughout all of his work. The developmental theory. Yeah. Yeah. And so he said, oh, you need to read Immunity to Change. So I pick up the book in a much greater sophistication than I use. You have a framework that is, in my view, completely actionable for both an individual and an organization, and probably most relevant for leaders who are trying to make change in an organization. So it's hard enough for an individual to change, but as a leader, you have to change and you have to get a group of people to change with you. So I was wondering if you could walk through immunity to change and just talk about what you recognized in the four stages that are listed in the book and how that can help people transform from where they are to a result that they say they want. And again, I assume when people say they want something, they do, even if their behavior, the problem as yeah. a coach and a consultant yeah. is you say you want this, but then your your actions don't exactly. back up that. But yeah. I do believe on, they're being honest when they say they want it. Well, completely agree. And I admire that you've intuited a lot of you know what it took us a lot longer than apparently it took you to get to. So And I know that we're kind of running out of time here. So let me maybe just give you like a quick example of all this that maybe will translate well for your listeners, because I could well imagine that many of your listeners could feel this is all very interesting, but pretty abstract. And actually what we've mostly talked about is more like the first 20 years of a 40-year career. And the last 20 years have been very, very practical, working with individuals, teams, whole organizations on these change processes using these developmental ideas, but in ways that lead to very practical results. So let me just give you an example, and it, and it will, these different uh, columns that you identified, and your listeners will see that a lot of that is very, very aligned with kind of the way that we've come to practice all of this. So one big problem, I think it's pretty global problem, but I'm more familiar with it in the United States, is that we've developed and invested billions of dollars in very sophisticated pharmaceuticals, and many of them are actually very, very effective, but people won't take them, or they won't take them regularly as they should. So this is a big problem in medical practice, patient non-adherence to prescriptions. And 
one big instance of it, one big segment of it is, and it's truer as people get older, but it's true for some younger people as well, that people get prescribed what gets called maintenance medications. If you have high you know, cholesterol or something, you might be prescribed a statin drug that you should take maybe for the rest of your life, and it will lower your bad cholesterol. Now, the problem is that, and just as you say, and I totally agree with you, Anthony, when people say they really want this, I take it seriously. And even though their behavior is contrary, I don't take that as evidence of their hypocrisy and the proof that they don't really want it. I take it as the proof that people are complex. And even though a part of them really wants something like really wants to take their drugs as prescribed, there's something else going on and we need some way of understanding what that something else is and how the different parts relate to each other. So heart doctors will tell you that they can tell their patients that they will literally die if they don't change their ways of living around diet, exercise, smoking, and the like. And still it only turns out that about one in seven patients can actually make the changes and I think we can assume that they all sincerely want to make it. The other six people want to keep living and seeing right. their grandchildren grow up and so on, but they can't do it. So what's going on? And it's interesting, you know, that our our usual approach to this is to try to just attack the behavior, the behavior of, you know, not taking the drug regularly or not filling the prescription when it runs out and so on. So you have now all these methods like pharmacies that will send uh, voicemail messages to your phone telling you it's, you know, time to pick up your drug and so on. And these things don't work very well because they're just aimed at trying to change the behavior. It's like going on a diet. I want to lose weight, so I change my eating behavior. I go on a diet. If I stick to it for a while, I lose weight. Inevitably, I regain the weight. Most people regain all the weight they lose in a diet, even more sometimes than they lost, because the orientation is just toward kind of willpower and just trying to change your behavior and a New Year's resolution and so on. So I quickly want your listeners to kind of get a glimpse of what this whole phenomenon is that we think we've uncovered that we call the immunity to change. So sticking with this example about people not taking their medications, we've studied this. And so just to give you an example, here's a guy who's 58 years old. He's prescribed three of these maintenance medications. He knows he needs to take them to avoid having a stroke. He definitely wants to take them, but he's not taking them. And when we ask him, you know, well, why aren't you doing it? If you know you need to do it, the most common answer is, I don't know, or <laughs> things come up, I get busy or whatever. These are the answers of children. And when bright people give you answers that sound like kids, you know, you're in the presence to go back to our earliest part of this conversation. You're in the presence of the difference between what is conscious and what's aware, what's in awareness for people. That is what is object for them. And what they're just blind to because they're subject to it. They're run by it. And when a person says, I don't know, they're literally telling you the truth. They don't know it because to know it, they would have to have it as object. So we've developed this process by which we can very quickly get to and uncover what is subject for the person that is accounting for all the contrary behavior. So in our first column, we have, what is your goal? Okay, I want to take the medications as prescribed. In the second column, we, we ask people to just be very literal and concrete. Just tell on yourself, show us all the behaviors that run counter 
to your commitment. So in his case, it would be a, you know, I don't take them every day. When they run out, I don't promptly refill them. When I get those voicemail messages from the pharmacy, I hang up in the middle of the message. These are all his behaviors. Then we ask people to actually try to vicariously imagine doing the opposite of these behaviors, and we try to trigger what will the biggest fears be, just like you've intuited there about fear. And this is really interesting because I, like I asked this man, so imagine that you were taking the drug every day. You know, what would be your biggest concern about that? And his answer was, his first answer was, my biggest concern is if I don't take these drugs every day, I could have a stroke and die. Now, that is not answering my question. I asked him what his biggest fear would be if he did take the drug. And here's this bright guy who doesn't even realize that he can't answer that question because it's a, it's a question he's never asked himself. There's no neural pathway yet built to answer that question to bring the brain science in here. But he does have a very familiar neural pathway around his concern if he doesn't take the drug. So, you know, without realizing it, he just switched into the neural pathway that seemed closest to my question. I'm asking him about the drugs and what he's worried about. I'm asking him about what he'd be worried about if he is taking it. He doesn't have any way to answer that, but he does have this pathway about his worry if he doesn't take it. So he tells me my biggest worry, if I don't take it, I could have a stroke and die. This is very common. It shows you what it is to not yet have this in object where you can look at it. So I had to say to him, of course, I understand, sir, that if you don't take the drugs, you have this worry that you could have a stroke and die. But just stick with me here because I'm really asking you something a little bit different. Imagine yourself actually taking the drug Every single day. If I have to take that damn drug every single day, he said, interrupting me, I would feel like an old sick man. I tell you, I'd feel like somebody more in my father's generation who's in a nursing home, by the way, who I'm not visiting. Whew, okay. All this stuff comes out. Now we understand. We're beginning to understand why his behavior of avoiding this drug hanging up on the voicemail messages, staying away from the drugstore and so on, why it is so brilliant. We all we want to know why all these second column behaviors, instead of looking at them as just bad things and you're going to willpower resolve to stop doing them, we need to know why they are brilliant. What counter-commitment, what previously hidden counter-commitment is served by your not taking the drug? Well, now he sees from his point of view, a person who has to take a drug every day, he said this. I said, well, you've got strong feelings about this. He said, you're damn right I do. He said, I'm not, I'm not some half-dead guy on life supports who has to take a damn drug every day. You know, I'm 58 years old. I'm in the prime of my life. I'm, you know, I can press so many pounds and blah, blah, blah. So we're starting to see that in his mind, some part of his psychology, this prescription by this, by this doctor involves a psychological ascription of a kind of identity to him, that he's this you know, half-dead guy that is so noxious to him psychologically that he'll do everything he can to avoid associating with that identity, even to the point of risking his actual physical health. Now we see what we call the immune system. The immune system is this notion that we have a generally invisible um, phenomenon at work that is that is saving our lives. The, the immune system in, uh, has just one function, and that's to protect us. And he is saving his psychological life by not taking that drug. And, uh, of course, sometimes the immune system is wrong, and it regards as a danger something which is really not a danger. 
And by making it, moving it from subject to object, we can move to the level, having you know triggered the amygdala, we move now to the level of the neocortex. What are the assumptions? What are the beliefs that are hanging behind that commitment. So he has, for example, the belief that anybody who has to take a drug every day is some kind of an old person who's, you know, half dead, like lying on a gurney or something with tubes in their body. And by the way, since we're talking about this in the terms of marketing, you know, one of the ways this research was used was to start putting advertisements on television and so on of relatively young looking people who are taking maintenance medications every day. And just as a way, I don't know how effective it is, but it is a way of kind of attacking this hidden constraining assumption that if you have to take a drug every day, you're some old guy who belongs kind of in a nursing home. So let's see pictures of vibrant guys who have big sex lives and run around the country and do all kinds of interesting things that you'd identify with, and they take a drug every day. So you can see how working against these assumptions on behalf of changing the mindset may turn out to be much more powerful ways to alter people's behavior than just trying to, you know, uh, access their willpower. I'm glad that was all theoretical, and you're not talking about any behavior that somebody listening to this uh, could have, right? (laughs) I mean, this is other people we're talking about. Of course, of course. What about organizationally? Does an organization have the same immune system built in? Yeah, so that's a very good question. Short answer is yes. You don't even have to move so far up to the complexity of a whole organization. You can just ask yourself, do collectivities, it could be a married couple, it could be a small work team within an organization, is it too in the grip of forms of self-protection where those behaviors that are contributing to its ineffectiveness have as their source some form of self-protection? Yes. And this is all in the book, Immunity to Change. Many chapters on looking at this at the collective level and what happens when you start surfacing these things and moving them from subject to object. It's a brilliant piece of work. Do you have time for two more questions? I have time for one more question. Okay, one more question then. What have you studied that's been most instrumental in your own development? What's had the greatest influence on your thinking? What or who? First of all, people can give you answers to these questions that may sound like they make sense and they may not be the truth. I mean, uh, <laughs> this is what subject and object is all about. I mean, the people who've been the biggest influence, maybe I don't, I'm not even uh, aware of. Aware, yes. But I came to, I did my graduate work at Harvard and I came to Harvard in the 70s and it was a kind of golden age for developmental psychology. I mean, there were a number of people there doing work that made it a very fertile context for thinking about these kinds of issues. And so people like Lawrence Kohlberg, William Perry, they were big influences in person, not just on the text. They were actual real people in my life who mentored me and they were a huge influence. I brought to graduate school an interest in existential psychology and a whole more sort of continental school of psychology, which was totally alien to these people at Harvard, but they were respectful enough that I could bring that in as well. And so I could move from this rather dry cognitive psychology, which they were kind of working in, to the bigger canvas of the whole person and through the marriage, really, of these different psychologies, my work was kind of the offspring of that. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure, Anthony. Thanks for talking with me. 
I'm going to send you out to find Bob Keegan at mindsatwork.com. You're going to find that in the show notes. You should also go to amazon.com and pick up Immunity to Change and all the rest of Bob's work if this is something that interests you, and it should, because much of what we do in life and in business is around psychology, and most of the time we're dealing with adults, and this will give you an understanding of what you're looking at and what it might mean, and you might learn something about yourself too. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com where I blog daily and where I write a newsletter every Sunday. So when you go there, do sign up for the newsletter. It's the best piece of content I produce every week. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. And right now you should find me at preorder.theonlysalesguide.com where you can pick up my new book, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need. This has been In the Arena. If you enjoyed this, go out to iTunes and rate it five stars and subscribe. That helps me more than anything else right now, except for maybe that book order. I'm Anthony Anarino, and I'll see you next time in the arena. There's no way we're getting out of this podcast without me pitching my new book, the only sales guide you'll ever need being published by Portfolio on October 11th, 2016. Right now, I've done something that no one else has ever done. I've delivered a package of bulk buy bonuses for you that are actual value that have never been delivered before and that are going to help you transform your own personal results and the results of your team. And I want to take 30 seconds and tell you what is inside the book. Inside the book is two sections. One section is about mindset. So it's about behaviors and beliefs and attitudes. And the second half of the book is skills. And what this is essentially is a deficiency model. So any area where you might need to improve to succeed in sales is in this book. Maybe it's your discipline. Maybe it's your attitude. Maybe it's your resourcefulness. Maybe you need help closing. Maybe you need help prospecting or developing your business acumen. It's all in there. So right now, go to preorder.theonlysalesguide.com and you're going to be able to download a couple chapters. In one of those chapters, you're going to find the table of contents, which will describe to you all of the attributes and all of the skills you need to succeed in sales now. This book will make you better. This book will help you grow. This book will help you develop into a trusted advisor, a consultative salesperson, and somebody who wins new business. So go check it out, preorder.theonlysalesguide.com. Look for the bonuses and do send me a note and let me know how you like the book. Go pick up the book now. I promise you're going to love it and you're going to be transformed. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.